0: What is the most memorable week of your life? Maybe it was the week you got married or the week you spent in Cabo with some college buddies back in the day. Or maybe it is the first week at home with your firstborn baby and you realize that they did not send you home with any instructions for this child and it was the first of many weeks without any sleep. What's the most memorable week of your life. We all have those those days from our past that we can point to that are are memorable for us, that they're meaningful for us and and powerful for us and they they, they shaped who we are today. We're in the season of Lent and and we're going to spend the next 40 days or so looking at seven days. Seven days that you could say saved the world and seven days that changed your life even if you may not know or appreciate the fact that they have saved and changed your life just yet. We're going to spend the next 40 days between now and Easter looking at the last seven days of Jesus' life. And asking the question, not just what happened during those days, and we're going to slow walk through them and and look at them in detail, but constantly turn back to ourselves and ask what in the world, the events of that final week of Jesus' life, what do they mean for me today and and the life that I'm living right now in this moment in the middle of March? I remember my my first week at my first job. I was 15 years old and uh, I I got a stern warning from my boss, a gruff old German man named Howard Price. And he pulled me aside and he told me at the end of my first week, he said, "'You do not take time seriously.'" And apparently, he wanted me when I showed up every day and then when I left every day to pull out my time card and meticulously write down the precise moment that I arrived and the exact moment that I left, rather than what I had chosen to do, which was grab my time card at the end of the week and just make a rough guess about how much time that I worked. (laughs) That was not satisfactory for Howard Price. He took time seriously, and he wanted me to as well. I wonder how Howard felt when he read the Gospels, which which I know he did because he went to my church, which is how I got that first job in the first place. Because when you read the Gospels, the the books of the Bible that tell us the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, you get the sense throughout the majority of the Gospels that, that they don't take time seriously, at least not in the way that you and I do when we recount history. You see, in the first century, the, the discipline of being a historian uh, was driven by different values than it is today. In, in the first century, the emphasis was much more on what happened rather than when it happened. And today, we're focused on both, what and when. But in the first century, it's much more about what happened. And and when it happened was kind kind of malleable, which is why you'll see events in different gospels kind of meshed together or rearranged, or at times it can be hard to tell how much time was elapsing between one event and the next. Because the emphasis was on what happened, not so much when it happened, but that it happened, right? Until, in each of the gospels, you get to Holy Week. And that's when all of a sudden the emphasis is not just on what happened, but when it happened. And each of the gospel writers all of a sudden slow down and they pay incredible detail to each day of that final week, giving us a a blow-by-blow, almost moment-by-moment accounting of what happened in that, that final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. And the reason is important. The gospel writers each knew that that week was the week. That that week was, was the week that saved the world, that changed it all. And so they slowed down and they focused on those seven days. And so are we. In fact, this morning, I want to walk us through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and part of Thursday. Are you ready? So on Sunday... Jesus heads to Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure at some point in your life you have, you've been on a family road trip. Maybe you've taken like the two-day car ride to grandma's. or You've taken a family vacation to the Grand Canyon. And if your family is anything like mine, then, then in your family there's the one person in the car who is just monstrous about making good time. They want to make sure that they get there in the shortest amount of time as possible. They make as few stops as possible. They see the GPS not just as a way to get there, but a game to play and something to beat. Their favorite phrase in the car is, you can hold it, let's keep going. They are focused on getting to their destination. That was Jesus when it came to Jerusalem in the final week of his life. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is kind of jumping in and out of Jerusalem, but you get the sense in all of the Gospels that in the final week of his life, Jesus is, as one of the writers puts it, he is setting his face towards Jerusalem. He is determined to get there. He's looking at the disciples and saying, we have to get there as quick as possible. You can hold it. I've got plans to accomplish in Jerusalem. It was the time of the Passover, one of the The most important feast in the Jewish calendar. And and Jesus was not the only person making a road trip back into the heart of Jerusalem. Uh, History tells us that Jerusalem's population on a normal week was roughly about 50,000 people. During Passover, it swelled to anywhere from 250,000 to 500,000 people in Jerusalem. Lots of people were making this journey. And they were making this journey into Jerusalem to be at the temple. Now, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey on Monday. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey on purpose because this is what's predicted the long-awaited Savior King would do. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the height of Passover celebrations when thousands of other people are entering in, and he enters in in the way everybody expects the Messiah to enter in, and people are waving palm branches, shouting, Lord, save us. Uh, The Greek word is Hosanna. And Jesus is doing this so that there would be a giant red arrow blinking above his head so that everyone who knew what that prediction and that prophecy was would know that he was trying to say, I'm the one that is fulfilling it. He enters into Jerusalem saying, I am the long-awaited king. And then on Monday, he goes to the temple On Monday, he goes to the temple, and the temple is the heart of the action. Now, this is where uh, the lambs were going to be sacrificed. This was the focus of everybody's attention during Passover week. So, Jesus goes to the temple, and he starts flipping over tables, causing a massive scene. He goes, Marie Kondo on the place, Netflix reference, and he's like, This does not give me joy. And he flips over all the tables. And he takes a whip and he starts driving people out. And the reason is because the temple courts were supposed to be a place where people who were not Jewish could get close to the Jewish celebration so that they could hear it and smell it and see it and be caught up in the wonder of it all and perhaps become believers in it. But the temple courts had been filled with people selling religious accessories for all the Jewish travelers who were coming into the city. And so none of the outsiders could get close enough and Jesus was not not having it so he starts driving people out like he owns the place clue he does so then on tuesday after he's entered in with a blinking red arrow above his head on sunday and after he's caused a massive scene in the temple turning over tables and cracking a whip literally on tuesday jesus decides to teach And remember, the city is overflowing with people. And Jesus is a well-known rabbi, a popular teacher. So he stands on the side of a hill and he starts teaching. And a major crowd of onlookers and religious leaders gathers around him. And Jesus starts to teach. And not only does he teach, he says, look, you can't trust the religious leaders. And that temple everybody's crowding around, one day that temple's going to be destroyed and it's not even going to matter anymore. And the people, Israel... They're all gathered here. They'd like to kill the real prophets like me. Oh, and the blessings of the kingdom, they're going to end up being given to all the people that all the people in charge think don't deserve it. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders are wanting to kill him and people are shocked at what he is saying. And it's only Tuesday. Tuesday. Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday in the final week of Jesus' life serve a very specific purpose and they're meant to give to you and me one profound point, And it's this, that Jesus enters Jerusalem in total control of what's about to happen to him in that week and asserting himself as the Savior King. Jesus is in control and he is asserting himself as the Savior King. Everything that is about to happen in the rest of that week, Jesus wants to happen. Which is important to understand because in the rest of the week, Jesus is going to look very weak and he will be weak. He's going to look like the victim and he will be victimized. He's going to be beaten and bloodied and bruised and ultimately murdered unjustly and put in a tomb. But don't be deceived. Jesus is not out of control Everything that is about to happen, Jesus wants to have happen, and Jesus enters Jerusalem asserting himself as the king and instigating the confrontation that will lead to his coronation on a cross. He is the king, and he is in control, which is why he rides in on a donkey, why he causes a stir in the temple, and he says outrageous things with thousands around him at the height of the Passover. He wants every single eye on him. And then it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday, and everybody's waiting to see what Jesus will do next. Jesus apparently needs a break, and so he and his disciples and a handful of others, they leave Jerusalem for a moment. They go to a little tiny town just about two miles outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. And it's there in that, in that town that, and in the house in Bethany that Jesus is anointed with perfume or oil. Uh, one of his followers, a woman who was likely of, of wealth and means, um, and we know that because of the perfume that she has, but also because the gospel writers tell us that, that it was women of means and wealth who largely funded Jesus' ministry. And this was likely one of those women she took an per- expensive bottle of perfume and she poured it over Jesus and anointed him. Uh, in fact, the gospel writers tell us exactly how expensive this bottle of perfume was. Uh, you heard it in the reading from, from Mark just a moment ago. It was 300 denarii, and one denarii was, was one day's wage. So it was 300 days' wages. That's how much this bottle of perfume was. So for, for the sake of like modern equivalents, let's say someone makes $10 an hour, eight hours a day for 300 days. That's $24,000. That's a $24,000 bottle of perfume, or if you're cheap, that's like 2.3 million gallons of Axe body spray, right? And and it's all poured over Jesus. And and people would be anointed with perfume or oil for two reasons. Remember, Jesus had just asserted himself as the Savior King. And, And in the first century ancient world, Uh, people of of high position and authority, like a king or, say, a high priest in the temple, people who were said to have been chosen by God for their role would often be anointed with with oil or perfume poured over them as a sign, a symbol of of God choosing them and setting them apart. So it makes sense that this follower would say, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah king. Let's anoint him because he's God's chosen one. Let's pour perfume on him. But then Jesus turns the table And he says, oh no, she's not anointing me because I'm the king, though I am the king. She's anointing my body for burial, which is the other reason why you would pour oil or perfume all over someone. It was an act of hospice care for someone who was imminent for the grave. You would pour perfume and oil all over them as a way of preparing for the the forthcoming odor of rotting flesh to prepare against it. And so Jesus says, she's anointing me not just because I'm king, she's anointing me for my burial because I'm about to die. And at that precise moment, Judas begins to betray Jesus and he steps out of the house in Bethany and he scurries over to Jerusalem and he starts to make a deal for how he can betray Jesus. And on Wednesday, this is what we learn about Jesus. We learn that Jesus is a certain type of king. Sunday through Tuesday tell us that Jesus is asserting himself as the Savior King, but Wednesday tells us the type of king that Jesus is. He's the type of king who is going to win for his people, but he's going to win for his people by losing. He, he's going to... He's going to He's going to gain everything for us by losing everything himself, starting with his friends who begin to betray him in the person and work of Judas, but also in losing his own life. He will will show his power and accomplish his will through his own suffering and weakness because he is ultimately a servant. That's the kind of king that he is. So on Wednesday, we learn the kind of king Jesus is. He's a suffering servant king. And then it's Thursday. It's Thursday and it's time for the Passover to be celebrated. And so Jesus and his disciples, they, they gather together in the upper room uh, to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, uh, you, you may or may not know this, and if you don't know this, I don't blame you because the, the history of God's people is, is kind of intricate and detailed and at times a bit confusing. But, but the Passover is a celebration of a moment called the Exodus. Uh, the Passover was the The remembering of of how God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt hundreds and hundreds of years before. And he'd freed them by bringing this plague of death down upon the Egyptians and the Israelites. But the Israelites were spared from death because following God's order, they sacrificed a pure and spotless lamb and put the blood of the pure and spotless lamb on the doorways of their home. And so when the When the judgment of death came upon Egypt, God's people were spared and they were able to run free. And so in celebration and commemoration of that, every year uh, the people would gather together and they would sacrifice a lamb, ideally near the temple in Jerusalem if at all possible, which is why hundreds of thousands of people gathered there. And they would have this all-important meal. It was a meal that you had with your closest family and your closest friends. It was It was. Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Eve all rolled into one except without the turkey and the presents and the politics and the football. It was a profoundly important celebration. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples to have this important meal to celebrate God's people being released from slavery in the past. But but you may know this, Jesus takes that meal, that Passover meal, and he redefines it and he reorients it around himself. And he says, from now on, every time you, you gather for this meal, it's no longer about remembering your freedom that was won in the past. It is about receiving freedom and forgiveness that I'm going to win for you on Friday in my death on a cross. And so he takes all the elements of that Passover meal and he says, this wine, this wine now forevermore is my blood shed for you. And this bread, this bread now is my body given for you. And now every time you gather around this meal, you will have me with you and you will taste the freedom and the forgiveness that I'm about to win for you on the cross. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. Lord, apostrophe S, possessive S. It's Jesus' Supper that he instituted and he gives to us. It's also known as Holy Communion or the Eucharist. It's not something that, that some guys just made up someday because they wanted some snack in the middle of service. As if some guy was sitting next to his buddy and was like, you know how sometimes the sermon's really long and we get hungry? You know how sometimes you're just craving carbs and would love a glass of wine? I got an idea. That's not how this came about. No, instead it was Jesus taking the whole meal and making it about him and saying, every time you gather like this with bread and wine, it's actually my body and my blood, and I'm here present with you to give the work of the cross that I'm about to die on to you every single time. That's what that meal is about. Now, now here is what is is extra mind-blowing to me. Judas was at the table. The one who the day before had left to go instigate this crime against Jesus was back at the table and it it had not been uncovered that he was about to betray Jesus and turn him over to the authorities, although Judas would do that in just a matter of moments. But Jesus knew because he's God in flesh, he knew what was going on and he even calls out the disciples about it while he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He looks around and he's like, I know one of you is going to do me bad, but I'm still going to introduce this meal to you. And that's the the just mind-blowing beauty of this. The gospel writers, and then in the New Testament, Paul, they go to great lengths to remind you that Jesus instituted this meal on the same night that he was betrayed. Have you noticed every time, if you've been here with us for some time, every time we have the sacrament, which is a couple times a month, when, when we talk about what that meal means, we say, Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Why do we do that? It's not just because it locates it in a particular moment in history. It's because it underscores the grace that is behind it. On the same night that Jesus had his friends turn his back on him and his own people falsely accuse him and arrest him, he took bread. On the same night that one of his disciples that he had given everything for betrayed him, Jesus took bread. On the same night that everyone who was supposed to love him turned their back on him. On the same night that that the whole world conspired against him to crucify him and kill him, Jesus took a bread and he took wine and he said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Take and drink, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you on the cross for the forgiveness of all your sins. In the face of traitors and treachery and backstabbers, he established a meal of mercy for them. On the same night he's betrayed, he takes bread and says, Have my presence, feel my grace, it's here for you. And it's a meal that's still being doled out in the presence of the treacherous and the traitorous and the unworthy today. It's still being offered. And what Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' life tells us, it tells us about the nature of his kingdom. The nature of his kingdom is one of profound, undeserved, incomprehensible grace and mercy. Here's the kind of kingdom Jesus has established. He's established a kingdom where even if you're Judas, you're invited to the table with Jesus. Jesus. And he offers you mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. Now, Judas didn't take him up on it. But you do. And I do. That's the nature of his kingdom. Now, if if that's what happens Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the first half of Thursday, what does that mean for today, right here, right now? Now, I, I can answer that question, what does this mean for you, for hours on end. You're like, no surprise, man. One time I made the mistake of asking my brother, who is a self-professed nerd, why exactly we needed multiple versions of the show Star Trek. He's still answering that question for me. That was four years ago. This is my Star Trek. I could go on forever and ever about what these, these moments we've just described mean for you, but... but But if I had to focus my answer down down to just like one point, I would try to speak to the person who is here today, and you know who you are, who is going through something very, very difficult, and you're finding it hard to trust in the goodness of God. And you come here this morning, and maybe... Maybe money is really tight for you and you don't see it getting better for you like HOA fees are due and you don't know how you're going to pay them or, or you've been out of work for, for too long and you don't see any opportunities open up or somebody that you love is sick and it's just, it's not getting better. Or there's a person you care about who doesn't care about you and is not talking to you or, or there is some kind of injustice at your work or in your school or in your family that you are just frustrated and angry about and, and nobody else seems to care about that wrong being righted. And you come into this place and you come here more out of obligation and habit than anything else. And if pressed, you would say this. If you're not going to do anything about that, then I, I, can, I don't know how to trust you. Because this, this is not okay. And I need you to do something about it. And if that's you, then what, what Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the first half of Thursday tell you is this. That Jesus can be trusted in the middle of your struggle. And here's why. He can be trusted in the middle of your struggle because he, unlike everybody else, he knows the full weight of whatever pain you're experiencing. He knows your pain. He knows it. And you're, you're here this morning, and maybe you you know death. You know betrayal, you know heartache, you know worry. Jesus knows death and betrayal and he knows heartache and he knows worry. I I don't know why he's allowing you to go through what you're going through, but I know that he's not asking anything of you that he has not first asked of himself. And that has to count for something. In terms of knowing that your God above you may be mysterious to you, but he can and he does empathize with you. And so he can be trusted by you. And he he can be trusted by you because, remember how I said he stayed in control? He was in control of everything, even though he was weak and wounded and dying and suffering. He was still in control. He, He is still a God who is in control in the midst of your suffering and your struggle. And you know how Jesus was able to use his own suffering and his own struggle for redemptive, beautiful purposes? He can and he will use your struggle for redemptive and beautiful purposes. I'm not saying you'll get to know what those purposes are. I'm just saying this is the kind of God that Jesus is, who uses pain and problems for his purposes. And you can be certain that he's using your pains and your problems and your struggle for his purposes as well. What... What we do know is that sometimes God allows things that he hates in order to accomplish things that he loves. And so there is always purpose in our pain. Because there is purpose in Jesus' pain. And and you can trust him because he has shown his grace-filled heart for you. He... He is not punishing you or holding things against you. I know that sometimes when things are not going well for you, you're tempted to think, Man, did I do something wrong? Did I make you mad? Did I not pray enough before dinner when I was growing up? Did I did I harass my brother and sister a little too much? Is this payback for all of that? That's not how God works. God doesn't keep score. Horrible parents in Little League keep score. God doesn't keep score. That's not how He works. He's not punishing you for anything else you've ever done in your life. He's not doing that at all. In fact, if anything, we learn from from that Thursday of Holy Week that that God invites the, the worst and the least and the nothings to receive everything from him. He has shown his gracious heart towards you. He is kind towards you and he loves you. He can be trusted by you. What is the most memorable week of your life? What's the most important or impactful week of your life? Maybe it's this week. You never know. Whatever happens this week, I want you to be certain that the most important week in your life has already come and gone. And that's the seven days of Jesus Christ that changed the world where he showed himself to be your king who will sacrifice for you and serve you, who will give himself for you and who has undeserved mercy and grace for you and will win it all and offer it to you. So no matter what this next week has in store for you, you can roll out of bed tomorrow morning and put your feet on the floor and you can... You can, with with literal words, you can say, you can say, I trust you. And no matter what unfolds after that, you put one foot in front of the next, you do the next right thing, knowing that Jesus is king, he's there to serve you and sacrifice himself for you, and that he loves you, he's looking out for you, he feels your pain, he redeems your pain, he loves you no matter your pain. So trust Him. No matter what happens this week, the most important week has already come and already gone and given you everything. Let's pray.